Welcome to episode three of the Degenerate Art Podcast. I'm your host, Mick Parsons. This episode features Reagan M. Sova, the author of Tiger Island, which was published this year by Harvard Square Press. He called us from Paris, France. Now, this episode of the Degenerate Podcast is brought to you by the Sludge Book Review, offering critical reviews of contemporary literature at sludgereview.com. You can sign up for our monthly reviews to be delivered straight to your inbox. Look for new reviews at sludgereview.com at the end of every month. Oh man, that's a that's a long story that could trace back to uh, to year five. But um, I, I'd say mainly it came out of an interest in the fiction of nation states and uh, just how if if everyone in or, or like half the people in France and two thirds of the military thought I was the king of France, you know, I'd actually be the king of France. So it's kind of like this, this fiction that we all go in on <laughs> and like, you know, we all know how the, the lines on the map are drawn in blood. And, and uh, so, so I had an interest for a long time in the fictitious uh, nature of countries. And I actually did my senior seminar project on uh, the principality of Sealand, which is a, uh, an abandoned uh, anti-aircraft base from World War II that this eccentric British guy took over in the 60s and started a pirate radio station on and uh, ended up claiming it as his own sovereign country. And um, <laughs> and I wrote a, sh- a short story about it for my project and sent it to him, and, and they actually made me a lord. So every time I, I went back and visited that professor, she'd say, Oh, I didn't know, you know, I'd have nobility in my uh, office today, but, but so, <laughs> so yeah, I was interested in that for a long time. Um, and then, uh, just kind of heard about just the wild history of Beaver Island, which is where Tiger Island actually takes place in the book. It's sort of like an alternate history okay. of Beaver Island, uh, which is in Lake Michigan, in between the upper and lower peninsulas of Michigan. And uh, so, yeah, from there, it just kind of, um, I had it rolling around in my head for about a decade, and I just thought, what if it was its own little country? And, like, what if, uh, you know, around the time of the Paris Commune, like, because all that up there was called New France and, and Northern Michigan, there's some parts that are actually the last parts that, that France uh, ceded to England, I think. Um, and, uh, and it was called New France up there. Um, so I just kind of had this wild story of like, you know, what if the anarchists in the Paris Commune in real life, they got routed to, you know, Belgium and England. What if they ended up over at this like tiny island and, and made a go at starting a commune and then, uh, of course, my background is a, a former college soccer player had an influence. So, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of stuff sort of coming together to to make that idea um, bring that idea out. Okay, 
so so you I guess you were this this novel kind of kind of fermented in your brain for for a long time then. Yeah, very long time. Um and I can remember, you know, 2006, so like yeah, almost 11 years ago drawing little maps of like uh you know the the Michigan peninsulas and then that uh that little island up there and like you know making little maps of of uh what would be in the in sort of the fake you know the the imagined country um and uh yeah man so so it was a long time um long time in the works and I actually did quite a bit of research just on Beaver Island and uh, and just kind of the founding of Michigan, delve back into my Michigan history because I wanted to have a really um, you know credible uh, backstory to it. Um, yeah, I mean even though it's a it's a pretty fantastical alternate history, just like you know I wanted to make it as uh, I wanted to make it a world, you know, and a fun world to to go to. Sure. Okay. So, I, I guess you know one of the things that I, I'd also like to talk about is maybe more about your about your specific process. One of the things about about writers, and I'm a writer, and we all have our our little, you know, the way we go about things. And and I, and I think it's interesting the 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 process, the 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 long sort of you know time you spent thinking about this book. Because I, I would drive me nuts, man. I got to be honest. Like, because it's it's a great story. It's an interesting story, and it's a, it's a it's a fun book. I just how do you how do you live with it for twelve years before you write it? Yeah, man. It's uh, it was a constant source of daydreaming, and uh, just like always, something in the back of my mind. And it it came uh, the first time I I put pen and paper to turn it into a an actual novel was in December of uh, 2013. I had this long Christmas break. Uh, I was at the University of Louisville. Uh, I was a, a PhD student there. Um, I ended up dropping out, but I had a, a Christmas break that um, that I had like two weeks, and and I wasn't very interested in uh, in the scholarly work, <laughs> which is why I ended up dropping out. But uh, so so my mind went other things and started, you know, laying the foundation of this and uh, wrote it and then didn't really pick it up again until the summer of 2014 and uh, went to to California and Seattle and kind of being on the academic calendar with some time, time off, worked on it some more. And um, I've had the good fortune to uh, have my sister be a, a professional writer um and uh also a good friend john yohi and then finally my friend uh ronnie ferguson they're all writers and so when i would finish uh a draft of it i sent a draft out to ronnie you know waited a couple months got some feedback revised based on that a little more polished up send it off to john get the, the draft back, polish it up, send it to my sister, you know. So I did, like, <laughs> two rounds of that over the course of, nice. like, two years, which, I, yeah, I don't know if it's the most efficient way to, to write a book, <laughs> but, you know, th- I knew this was gonna, being my first one. It was uh, 
and, and having it in my head so long. And, you know, there, I wouldn't say it's completely autobiographical, but some autobiography does inform it. And I kind of feel like, you know, it's like, uh, like Wes Anderson, you know, I think Rushmore is a special one for him sure. because that's probably, probably the most autobiographical for him. And it's, you know, I think it was his, his second movie, but, um, but yeah, I kind of felt felt the same way that like, you know, what I do after this might be uh, a little more out of the blue, but just <laughs> sort of cutting my teeth on novel writing and, and having it be so autobiographical and, and near to my heart, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put uh I'm going to throw the kitchen sink at this one and just do, do as much as I can to uh, make it flow good. And sure. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, that, 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 that connection with, you know, novels and fiction and then autobiography, because there's, there's, there's some, some really strong, like, like this is one of those books that, uh, it's very obvious that 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 you know a lot about soccer, and I guess being a, a, a former player, you would. But uh, there's like this. It's nice because you explain it in such a way that that maybe, because I know a little bit about the game, and I've used to watch like World Cup and stuff when I lived in uh, Arizona. In Arizona, cause it's huge out there. Uh huh. They, they love yeah. it out there. But uh, you know, it's. Uh, but there's there's like this, this 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 soccer, and then there's this other vein, this political vein. That, that, that's, that's there, but it it kind of wraps around in a very subtle kind of way, and and I I wonder how 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 both of those veins kind of you know informed. Like was that it's there in the beginning? Do you think that like this idea of, of of putting together like uh, this sort of Olympic notion, which be supposed to be very you know global and egalitarian, and of course we all know it's not. But you know they have this, this this Olympic ideal versus this very subversive uh, political element. Like, how was that? How did that? Yeah, that's um, man. That that ties ties kind of back into just in my twenties, uh, coming of age in in the shadow of the Iraq War going on, and like you know, I think nine eleven and the Iraq War are, are the two biggest sort of events if we call them that have shaped uh this this century at least you know for for america um you know in in my mind uh and so getting involved in like the anti-war movement and finding out about uh noam chomsky's work this episode of the degenerate art podcast is sponsored by social abundance marketing from social media coaching and training to workshops and consulting, Social Abundance Marketing can help you transform your business's online presence. Check out Social Abundance Marketing at socialabundancemarketing.com, on their Facebook page, on their Twitter feed, or LinkedIn page. Social Abundance Marketing, where social media is as colorful as your personality. When I was 20, I saw this movie called The Corporation, and it had it was a documentary canadian documentary it had a big influence on me and uh and this was right at the same time that i was playing ball for eastern michigan university and for a, a club called jacksonopolis in my hometown and so it was like my my two worlds were like radical politics and soccer and 
and I ended up finding out about like other groups like uh there's a group in in England called the Eastern Cowboys and Cowgirls and they're like explicitly anarchist soccer players and they they've actually gone down and played friendly matches with the Zapatistas in Mexico and like helped them out with community uh potable water projects and um and so yeah I kind of feel like there is this uh this kind of all subculture of like demented sports fans <laughs> that uh <laughs> you know are kind of interested in radical politics and soccer at the same time and and uh we see the boys in the book get get more interested in uh you know, at first they, they want to win a championship and they want to be pros and they know they're talented and and they could have a special team. But I think somewhere along the way, they kind of get the notion like we're the show, but who's running the show? And, and that's an important question, uh, I think, for all sports fans to ask because it's like we, you know – we we listen to the sports talk radio stations and they'll talk for like three hours till they're blue in the face about a, you know, a third round draft pick. And if he's a left-hand shooter and just like all, all this stuff. And, and, but it's like, meanwhile, the public's paying the cost for the stadium and, and the profits from it are going into very few pockets. So um, I, I feel like sports is, is uh, an area where everyone uh, maybe has a well, not everyone, but but many people in a city have a, a an ownership mentality of it. It's like when a team wins a championship, it's like we won, you know, we won that championship. But if you know the government puts a, a traffic light in somewhere, it's like oh, they did that, you know. So, so yeah, I what? Of, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, why do you think why do you think that is though? I mean, it, that's an interesting thing because I mean, I mean, well, you used to, you lived here in Kentucky, you know what it's like here. Uh, you know, this is the land of of UK versus you know everywhere else. Little and uh, yeah. you know, I mean, we I mean they, they they set catchers on fire here, whether they win or lose, like it's kind of a thing. And uh, but why is it? Why do you think people take so much ownership over 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 sports? Whether they whether they've never played it or not, or whether they went to college, I mean, I had, I had, I have ex-in-laws, former relatives, who will sit, would sit in front of a TV and cheer UK football games. That's University of Kentucky. Would never set foot on a college campus in their life. Right. You know, so yeah. what? What do you? What is it about about sports that, that gives people that sense of ownership? Whereas other public works projects, like a stoplight, like you know, better roads that that people don't take the same kind of ownership, even though the the tax how it gets paid for in the beginning is basically the same. So yeah, well, man, I I would say that uh, that gets into a big question that that might be soaring a little above, above my pay grade, but uh, <laughs> just to, to to delve my toe in with like. I could see two sides. Like the first is, um, you know, it could just come from, uh, and and I know this isn't true with everyone. This is a broad thing, but I think a lot could come from a certain type of longing just to be a part of something great. 
Um, you know, I, I come from Michigan and, you know, there's uh, a lot of, uh, difficult economic, uh, economically hard hit areas. Um, and, you know, a lot of, you know, rust belt, um, rust belt dilapidation, we might say, but the university of Michigan football team is, is something world-class that's, you know, in, in a lot of people's backyard even if you're living like in the UP it's like it's your state and you feel like it's in your backyard sure. so it's it's something great to to be a part of uh and and you know in like in South America too where there's uh people have have some difficult situations soccer can become almost like a religion for them and so that's sort of where my one theory would go is like sports are, are some sort of uh, spectacle, but also a uh, positive immortality symbol to use like sure. Ernest Becker to, to go on Ernest Becker and that people can tie themselves to and, uh, and feel like they're a part of something bigger and, and greater and, uh, you know that sort of thing. That's why when their team loses, you might have the gnashing of teeth because it's like, oh, you know, I got my identity and my reputation wrapped up in this because it's it's kind of all I got going for me, or you know, it's the biggest thing I got going for me. Um, again, not to say that that every fan is like that, but I think that could be uh, a big part of it, and and maybe you see in like the more harder hit areas uh um like you might have more fanaticism of all kinds and that includes sports but um and then sort of another theory is is just like you know people i know that that never step foot on like a college campus they might internalize that like hey that's a state school and i'm a worker and my tax dollars help pay for that therefore you know, that is something great, uh, a piece of greatness that I can be a part of, and actually I helped contribute to it in some way. Um, now, why that, why that doesn't transfer to, to other uh, publicly financed things and, like, why, why people don't look at a fire department and say, like, you know, they're heroes at a fire department. They help save lives, but I'm, I'm helping them. And, you know, that's something that's socialized and I, and I help pay the cost for it. You know, we should do that for healthcare too. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> th there's a leap that, you know, isn't, isn't being made by, uh, you know, maybe enough people, but, um, and, and I'm not sure how to, to bridge that, but yeah, I mean, with that being said, I know that, that, in a lot of polls, most Americans do want to see uh, healthcare socialized in a, and and run sort of like a fire department in terms of having it be um, socialized and and free at the point of delivery. So maybe a lot of people are making that leap. It's just getting bogged down by bought politicians. But oh, but yeah, by politicians and and you know big pharma and like all you know all the all the other interests absolutely yeah so um 
Yeah. What you know? What uh, you know? Because you know, you're you're you've got the, the this your your book. There's this very very political you know strain through this book, thematic in the book, and and, and you're a, a politically informed guy. So how how do you what is the relationship between politics and art? Like, do you see? Because I mean, it's one of those things that 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 you. You know, people say, "Well, you know, singers should just sing and not and, and, and shut the hell up about politics, and actors should just act and shut the hell up about politics." And that stuff they don't know anything about. But uh, what is what is the relationship for you between politics and art? Yeah, um, a, a very complex one, a very tricky one. Um, it's you know, I mentioned uh, my sister who's a writer, and and she and I have had many conversations about this, but. Um, you know, I definitely think that, uh, there is a place for, um, political art and, you know, art that gets us to, uh, recognize and question power structures. Um, but there's also a, a place for, um, for art that is maybe aiming to be pure entertainment. Um, now with that being said, like, even the pure entertainment, you know, uh, can be read politically and ideologically. And, and art, I don't think, ever really escapes, uh, can escape a political lens. I mean, you've had you've had Slavo Zizek talking about Kung Fu Panda for the last, like, five years. So if Kung Fu Panda can <laughs> escape, you know, <laughs> I don't know what can. So, uh, so yeah, like um, – it, there's always going to be a lens there. Uh, now, for me, as like a writer and a creator, um, you know, I I definitely want to I I take great pains not to preach and to you know there's that buzzword virtue signal you know take yeah. take pains not to do that and just craft a narrative that's like look at how woke I am or or whatever. Um, and so I do aim quite a bit for entertainment, um, but at the same time, you know, you you write something that's reflecting your life story or any sort of coming-of-age story, and, you know, I think politics are going to be a part of it. And, and I hope that I captured it, you know, somewhat uh, in an honest light in the book because, like, the boys – at times, you know, are bumbling and like, that's how, that's how it is with politics is like, sure. you know, if, if, especially a 19 year old trying to like improve the world, you know, there's going to be some, some naivete and, and I, that's okay. Like everybody's on their journey, but uh, when you try to capture that in art, you also need to capture sort of the clumsiness. Um, and so, so yeah, man, that's uh, that's a big question, and you know, I definitely look back at like people like George Orwell, who um, uh, who was like writing books that question power systems, and he was fighting with anarchists in Catalonia, and he got freaking shot in the throat, you know, like yeah, uh, he was the real deal, and like I don't know, nowadays we got like novels novelists that ever once every once in a while they might tweet an insult at Trump or, or something like that. It's like, I well, mean, you know, the war takes all forms, you know. The war, the war takes all forms, I guess, right? 
that's true. I mean, hopefully there's some novelists uh, right now who's in Rojava or, like, Athens, Greece, and they're like, hey, man, I'm doing it, you know, so hanging with anarchists there. So you never know who's out there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Degenerate Podcast. Our next episode will feature folk musician and poet J.P. Wright. The two times that we had a chance to actually sit down with Wendell Berry and his wife Tanya at their kitchen table, um, upon invite, because of my union work, but really because Donna's from Henry County too, and her entire family is from Henry County. They were tenement farm workers. They tenant farm workers. They lived on properties. Yeah, yeah. What's called? I mess up words all the time, but uh, they were uh, sorghum. Makers and uh, her f- grandfather was the most famous guy in Henry County. His name was Vernon Rucker. He was the famous sheriff that ran off the Hawkins. Be sure to check out our sponsors, Social Abundance Media and the Sludge Book Review, and give them some love. Uh, also, be sure to find us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you haven't already, please, please subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk again soon. Bye.